Hello and welcome to Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 21st, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening I am going to present the Gospel of the Kingdom. Tonight's program is really a sort of sequel to our presentation last week. This is not white supremacy, it is God's supremacy, although it also should stand by itself so that last week's presentation is really not a prerequisite. In Matthew chapters 4 and 9, the apostle described Yahshua Christ as preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then much later, and at the end of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 24, Christ himself is recorded as having said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. These words are quite ominous, as Christ himself equates the fulfillment of the age with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom would usher in the fulfillment of the end of the age. However, the gospel of Christ has been preached in diverse manners for 2,000 years, and the end has not yet come. So we must ask, was Christ wrong? Or could it be that the gospel of the churches is not the gospel of the kingdom? Here we hope to answer that question. In the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, we read, Now after that John, meaning John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. But the time which was fulfilled was not that of the end of the age. It was that of the coming and purpose of the Messiah. Christ himself, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, had cited a portion of Isaiah chapter 61 in reference to himself, where he said that he had come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Isaiah 61 verse Two, he uttered those words. He made that assertion that that was his purpose in the synagogue in Galilee, described in Luke chapter 4. I believe specifically in Nazareth. But we know that it was not yet the end of the age because he stopped short of citing the rest of the passage, which continues and says, And the day of vengeance of our God, that was not to happen yet to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. This we await with his promised return, the day of his vengeance. Much later, even after his resurrection, and as Christ was about to be taken up into the heavens, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1, 
his apostles had asked him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This question is a significant clue in determining what is the gospel of the kingdom, because the apostles at that time had expected Christ to restore the kingdom to Israel, which is to return the scattered children of Israel to their own kingdom, which Yahweh God had promised to elevate above all other people and to position to their position of dominance over all of the other Adamic nations, which they enjoyed in ancient times. Christ did not answer negatively, but instead he replied and he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the power has which the Father has put in his own power. So it is therefore fully evident that Yahweh God does indeed intend to restore the kingdom to Israel as the apostles had inquired. However, as Christ had answered, that was not going to happen just yet, and in many respects, we are still waiting for it to happen. So in order to help us answer our question relating to what is the gospel of the kingdom? Here we are also going to present, critique, and hopefully also augment a sermon by Bertrand Compare titled, What Gospel? If the churches are not preaching the gospel of the kingdom, then they do not represent Christ, and they are not discerning or disseminating the will of Yahweh our God. According to the words of Paul of Tarsus in Galatians chapter 1, they are accursed for preaching a gospel other than that which the apostles had delivered. But if we do preach the gospel of the kingdom, then what we call Christian identity is the only legitimate practice of Christianity in the world today. All of the churches are preaching the false gospel of personal salvation for anyone rather than the gospel of the kingdom. So now we shall begin, and as we proceed, we shall see that Compare also cited some of the same passages which I have quoted here, where he asks, What gospel? And like all of our Compare sermons, which are archived at Christiania, this was originally taken from Gene Snyder's publication of Compare's work printed under the title, Your Heritage, and re-digitized by Clifton Emmeheiser, who also added some of his own notes. Clifton worked from Gene's transcription rather than from the original recordings. And Gene, as I noticed listening to this sermon from Compare this afternoon, Gene took some shortcuts. So we will also try to correct some of those here. I added back in a lot of lines from Compare's sermon that Gene Snyder had left out, which was quite disappointing. We will present Clifton's notes at an appropriate point in this, in this review. Now we shall commence with Compare, who also begins with a criticism of the modern churches. And he says, we hear the word gospel used loosely. I was almost about to say wildly by many of the churches, some of which talk about the fact that they preach the full gospel and so forth. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is what gospel? 
An unfortunate characteristic of all major churches is that with great energy and the best intentions, they always oppose Yahweh's plans for the time in which they live. These churches fall into this error because they take a few verses of scriptures out of context. Then they elevate this into a doctrine and then they are stuck with it. They cannot retreat from this position without losing face by having to admit they made a mistake that they are not infallible. This was true at the first coming of our Redeemer, Yahshua, and it is equally true now that his second coming is near. And I must remind everyone that Compare did use the traditional terms Lord and God and Jesus. I don't despise mainstream Christians for using that ter those terms because they do so out of a combination of tradition and ignorance. It was Gene Snyder who changed the terms that Compare used to Yahweh and Yahshua. And that I left intact as I edited this sermon for this presentation. Bertrand Compare, who passed on in 1983, was quite confident that the second coming of Christ was near. And we should also have that confidence, even if it is another hundred or another thousand years. The apostles themselves taught that the prophesied return of Christ was imminent as Christ himself insisted that Christians act as if his coming is imminent. As he is also recorded as having said in Matthew chapter 24, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord does come. It is also true that the churches quite frequently take passages out of context and elevate them to doctrines. Once they do that, they cannot retreat from their error since they would have to admit, as Compare said, they would have to admit that they were wrong. And being wrong, they would also have to acknowledge that they are fallible. This is the problem with men who take for themselves titles of authority, who believe they have a commission from God and are therefore inspired by God. So they think they can speak for God, that they have license or, or spiritual authority to speak for God. Once they adopt these attitudes, they cannot back down from their mistakes. And the lies begin to accumulate rapidly in their attempts to cover for themselves. Then not only do they err by taking passages out of context, they even purposely mistranslate passages so that they appear to support the same false doctrines. Where they must, they insist that words have meanings other than their plain meanings, even meanings which the original writers of the scriptures could never have imagined. Then when identity Christians exhibit the correct translations, we are accused of making private interpretations in spite of an adherence to the plain meanings of the Greek or Hebrew words in question. By referring to churches at the time of the first coming of Christ, 
Compare was really referring to what was transpiring in the synagogues of Judea. But the original meanings of the words synagogue, synagogue, I'm sorry, and ecclesia, the Greek word translated, commonly translated or mistranslated as church. These words both refer to an assembly of people. Synagogue is actually a, a compound Greek word. Soon means with, ago, to be led, and gase is land. With a leading together or, or with an, a calling or an assembly together. To be led together with someone. That's where the word synagogue actually came from. I know it sounds crazy, but it's a Greek word. It's not even a Hebrew word. Never was. It's made from three short. It's a compound word made from three short Greek words. So they refer to assemblies of people. The error of the teachings in the synagogues of Judea is apparent as Christ condemned the Pharisees all over Judea and Galilee for teaching the commandments of men as doctrine rather than teaching the word of God. The churches do that same thing today. So what was known to be objectionable until just a few decades ago is now suddenly acceptable in spite of the fact that the word of God does not change. However, the detachment from the synagogues of the people of the time of Christ is apparent as John the Baptist and then Christ and his disciples were able to gather many adherents at the rivers on the Sabbaths. In ancient Israel, people were accustomed to gathering and worshiping at a river where there was no synagogue. That's clear from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, from Acts chapter 16, verse 13. Paul and Luke and his companions are in Philippi, I believe it was, and met Lydia and a group of women down by the river where they were worshiping and praying because they had no synagogue in that town. No synagogue of the Judeans. So it is evident that at least many of the people of Judea had acted as if they had no synagogues. They were going to the rivers. Although they must have had many synagogues. Christians today should be just as detached from the false churches. So continuing with Compare, the Bible contains all of Yahweh's message to his people Israel, both the message to the nation and that to the individual, both the gospel of the kingdom and the hopeful promise of personal salvation. You cannot truthfully claim to know your religion, nor to be an obedient child of Yahweh, if you know and follow only these two halves, only one of these two halves of his message. You cannot have either one in its full reality without the other. Each is just one part of Yahweh's perfect plan, and neither will work effectively without the other. Before Yahshua Christ's first coming, the people tried to take only the national part, and it brought them ruin. And I would say that they didn't even do that right, because they were sort of 
civic nationalists rather than racial nationalists. They accepted all of the converted Edomites and Canaanites. Compare continues and says, Since then, we have accepted only the personal part, and it has now brought us face to face with the most total catastrophe which has threatened the world since the first chapter of Genesis. Only Yahweh's plan, Yahweh's own plan, the balanced combination of both national and personal messages can give us life. As we may often observe in his sermons, Compare believed the Cold War would culminate with an invasion of the United States by Soviet armies, and that was the catastrophe which America and Europe would face. He didn't yet see that the invasion was already underway in the form of immigration, both legal and illegal. Nor could he have imagined the full extent of the Marxist indoctrination of the youth of the West by its own educational systems, which has been greatly magnified over the last several generations. We do not need to be invaded by an army. When we volunteer ourselves over to our enemies, which to a great extent we have already done, just look around and see who wears masks. Who wears masks voluntarily? Because I know a lot of people do it just simply because they're forced. Or they feel that they're forced. Only the first 11 chapters of the Bible concern the other non-Israelite nations of the wider Adamic race. But from Genesis chapter 12, the entire focus of the Bible is on Abraham and his descendants. And from the time when Jacob Israel inherited the blessings of Abraham in Genesis chapter 19, that focus is solely on Jacob and his descendants. The only time the other nations or other men and their descendants are mentioned is where it is pertinent to the purpose of God in relation to the children of Israel. So from the book of Genesis, right through to the end of the revelation of Yahshua Christ, the Bible is a book for one people only, which are those same children of Israel. The New Testament is not for all men in the context of all other races of men, because it is a record of the new covenant which was made by Yahweh God exclusively with the children of Israel, even according to the New Testament itself. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, for example. So where it says all men within the context of the covenant that it represents, it means all men of Israel, the only men under the covenant. Therefore, as Compare mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, the churches having taught otherwise certainly do stand in opposition to the purpose of God, without a doubt. Yahshua Christ declared that he came to uphold and fulfill the law and the prophets. Later, Paul of Tarsus explained that the writings of the prophets were for our learning in Romans chapter 15, but that there would be no more prophets as Yahweh God now speaks to us through his son in the opening verses of the epistle to the Hebrews. 
So Compre is also correct that the Bible, as we have it, contains everything which Yahweh God wants the children of Israel to know in relation to him and to his will. Now he continues, and he says, Today all the major churches teach nothing but the half, the half of the Bible, dealing with personal salvation by faith in Yahshua Christ as our Savior. I do not belittle it, for without this you have nothing. But with it, what do you have? That is what the rest of Yahweh's message deals with. Now he cuts this half and half stuff out because it's a very general comparison. And he gets a little narrower and probably closer to the truth where he says, only one-sixth of the Bible is addressed to the individual. The other five-sixths are addressed to the nation and race. If Yahweh found it important enough to devote five-sixths of his message to us in this gospel of the kingdom, should we find it important enough to learn what it is he has been telling us about? And actually, six-sixths of his message is for us. But one-sixth applies to each of us as individuals. It doesn't apply to anyone else. Even the laws of God, which are meant for individuals, are meant only for the nation and race of Israel. David had been elated in the 147th Psalm, Psalm 147, to proclaim of Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. And David expressed joy over that, saying, Praise ye Yahweh. Yet most of the historical and prophetic books of Scripture are also meant for the learning and edification of the nation and race, and not merely for the individual. The nation and nations which would come out of the race are the very subjects of the prophets, and not mere individuals. Personal salvation is a subject of only a few Old Testament passages, and not many more in the New Testament. The commandments which Christ expects Christians to keep, which include loving one's brother, loving one's neighbor as himself, forgiving one's personal enemies, caring for the orphan, the poor, the weak, and the elderly, these things are how a nation and race can survive and even thrive in times of adversity. So many of the instructions to the individual are still for the benefit of the nation and the race. All of these things are expected of Christians within the context of their own nation and race. This is more evident as Christ came only for the lost sheep. And therefore, as they themselves had explained, the apostles were concerned only for the twelve tribes. But there is no expectation in Scripture that Christians should care for the enemies of God. Christians do not have the capacity or the authority 
to forgive the enemies of God. And Christians are expected to reject the enemies of God, as we see in places such as 2 John verses 9 to 11. Paul of Tarsus describes how Christians should put into practice the gospel of the kingdom in Romans chapter 15. And we will cite our own translation for clarity. Moreover, from verse 1, we are obligated, we who are able to bear the infirmities of the weak or the sickly and not to please ourselves. Each of us must make amends with him near to us, his neighbor in the King James Version, for that which is good towards building, towards building that kingdom of God. Indeed, even Christ has pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those casting reproaches upon you have fallen upon me. Now, whatever things have been written before, have been written for our instruction, Paul referring to the Old Testament scriptures, so that through patient endurance and the calling of the writings, we may have expectation. So the Christian calling is in accord with the calling of the writings, the calling of the scriptures. And a little later on, in relation to the gospel of the kingdom, we will see exactly who the scriptures had called. And to continue with verse 5 of Romans chapter 15, And that Yahweh of patience and exhortation would give to you the same, to have understanding with one another concerning Yahshua Christ, in order that with one accord, in one voice, you should honor the God and Father of our Prince, Yahshua Christ. Therefore I say, Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh, for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers. And the nations, not the Gentiles, and the nations, for the sake of mercy, mercy being an, a subject of prophecy for the children of Israel, for the sake of mercy, honor Yahweh, just as it is written. For this reason, I will profess you among the nations, and I will sing of your name. And again it says, citing Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 33, Rejoice, nations, with his people. And again, praise Yahweh, all the nations, and commend him, all the people, the nations with his people, those nations being collectively his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, are referred to as nations in that same place in Deuteronomy. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be the root of Jesse, and he is arising to be ruler of nations. Upon him the nations have expectation. Now may Yahweh fill you with that hope, with all joy and peace in confidence, until you overflow with expectation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, I am persuaded, my brethren, even I myself concerning you, that you also are full of goodness, being full of all knowledge, being able then to advise one another, not to run out and advise people of other races. There is no concern for any nations in this context except for those nations which were promised to come from out of the loins 
of the fathers in those same promises to which Paul had referred, which are the nations of the children of Israel now found in white Christian Europe. If Christians are to read the Old Testament, which is the writings of the foretime to which Paul was referring, so that they may be instructed and have expectation and hope, then the gospel of the kingdom must be a message of hope for the same kingdom of God, which was described by the prophets of the Old Testament as being formed anew by Yahweh at some time in their future. Organized anew by Yahweh at some time in their future, in the future. Of those prophets. Continuing with Compare, he refers to that same thing which we just saw described by Paul in that chapter of Romans. He says, Our Christian religion begins with Yahweh's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and all the rest is the detailed development and fulfillment of those promises. The promises were racial and national. Here are some of them. This is citations from the promises throughout Genesis, from chapters 12, 13, 15, 17, 18, and 35. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those Genesis 10 families which were just described in Scripture, the descendants of Noah, were all the families of the earth in Genesis chapter 10, and they are all the families of the earth being referenced in Genesis chapter 12 in this promise to Abraham. All the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be numbered. And then skipping on. Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And then skipping on to Genesis 17. My covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. I establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Skipping on once more. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then skipping on to the time of Jacob. Genesis chapter 35. Unto thy seed will I give all these countries, a nation and a company of nations shall be of thee. Now note that all of these were racial and national promises, and indeed they were. In the book of Acts, and in all of the epistles of the apostles, there are proofs in their own words that they were addressing the very nations which resulted from those same promises to the fathers that their seed or offspring would become many nations. That is why James wrote to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, 
And Paul professed that the hope for which he labored was the hope which those same 12 tribes had in expectation of the fulfillment of the promises to those same fathers. The apostles labored for no other people but the lost sheep of the children of Israel. So Compare continues by discussing some of those promises further. And he says, certainly, Yahweh's further promises made at Mount Sinai were to the nation. Yahweh's laws were stated with the promise that the individual who obeyed them would be blessed, while he who held them in contempt would be cursed in punishment. It was also made the responsibility of the nation to see that Yahweh's will was obeyed by the individuals. For failure to enforce Yahweh's laws, the nation would be punished. For general obedience to Yahweh, the nation would receive the blessings of peace, great prosperity, etc. And that's Compare's word, <laughs> etc. I guess he really couldn't think of anything else offhand. The national character of blessings and punishments is wholly evident in the blessings of obedience and punishments for disobedience, which are announced in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In practice, this is evident in Ezekiel chapter 21, where the good would suffer for national sins along with the wicked. So the word of Yahweh came to the prophet and commanded him, Say to the land of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know all of those Israelites in the flesh, those having the spirit, that all flesh may know that I, Yahweh, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath, it shall not return any more. Shortly thereafter, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the remainder of Israel, which was not taken into Assyrian captivity, was then taken into Babylonian captivity. The whole nation suffered together, whether as individuals they were wicked or they were good. So Compare discusses this phenomenon, he continues in his discussion of this phenomenon, and he says, the national and racial character of these promises are often emphasized. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 promises, Thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are on the face of the earth. Again, in Exodus chapter 19. Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Numbers chapter 6. They shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I shall bless them. Compare continues. Now many people mistakenly think that the New Testament deals only with the individual, that its message is only that of personal salvation. But nothing could be further from the truth. Yahweh's word is still good. And if it were not, we would be lost indeed. 
For example, Yahshua Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yahshua taught only in parables, and nearly all of these concerned the kingdom of Yahweh. Most of them began. The kingdom of Yahweh is like unto, or sometimes the kingdom of heaven is like unto, this or that. But not one of them says the salvation of the individual is like unto something or other. Yahshua knew that he came to found the Christian religion, and he was careful not to teach that it abolished Yahweh's promises to his people. To the chief priests and elders, the religious leaders of the church of that day, he said, The kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. A nation, not to a church or a denomination. This is one of those instances where sometimes the speaker takes for granted that his audience had a certain amount of knowledge about a subject. And this is, I believe, one of them, like I discussed with Clifton last week. Compare did not elaborate on this scripture. Even though the kingdom was taken from them, from the Judeans, that does not mean that these enemies of Christ should have had control of it in the first place, as they themselves were intruders, infiltrators, as the apostles had also described them. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul described false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus. Likewise, in his own epistle, his only epistle, Jude had attested, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who before of old were ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Judas speaking about intruders, infiltrators into the assemblies of God. Not the people of God, God gone bad, but men who crept in unawares. False brethren, as Paul called them. They were the Edomites, who seized control of the kingdom in the days of the Edomite king Herod. So while ancient Israel was the kingdom of Yahweh, and for that reason Judea in the time of Christ was perceived by the remnant of Israel to be the kingdom of Yahweh, the prophets had already long aforetime announced that the kingdom would be elsewhere. One place in which this is described quite explicitly is in Micah chapter 4. The Assyrian captivities of Israel had begun several decades before the ministry of this prophet, before it began. But the children of Israel continued to be taken into captivity even as the prophet was writing. So speaking in reference to a future establishment of the kingdom of Yahweh, he wrote, perhaps around 720 or 730 B.C. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established 
in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn more war any more. But they shall, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken it. Now we still have war. So this time has not yet fully come, even though it has been developing. Now on the surface, it may be asserted that the reference to many nations is a reference to Gentiles, as the churches claim that Gentiles are non-Israelite nations. But as the prophet continues, it becomes clear that the many nations must be those same nations which had come from ancient Israel, where he wrote in the very next verse, For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God, and we, meaning Israel, Israel scattered into many nations, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. So the non-Israelite nations will not walk in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And instead, their fate is with their own gods. Now as Micah continues in the next verse, in verse 6 of Micah chapter 4, we see that he wrote all of this in relation to the Israelites who were being taken into captivity. In that day, saith Yahweh, Will I assemble her that halteth? The Israelites who didn't go very far in their captivity. And I will gather her that is driven out. Speaking of those same people, those Israelites driven out. And her that I have afflicted. Speaking of those same people, the people that Yahweh afflicted in punishment for disobedience. And I will make her that halted a remnant those people that stayed close to Palestine, they were only going to be a remnant. And her that was cast far off, a strong nation. And the further the Germanic tribes had migrated away from Palestine, the stronger they became in history. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And now, O tower of the flock, stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem, that strong nation that Micah spoke of. So the distinction of being the kingdom of Yahweh, which was indeed taken away from Judea, must have been given over to the same kingdom of which Micah had prophesied and must have been given over to people who descended from the ancient Israelites.
The phrase, Daughter of Jerusalem, refers to a people who had come from ancient Jerusalem or the nation of which it was the capital. We see it in this context in similar messianic prophecies in Zephaniah and in Zechariah. In Zephaniah chapter 3, we read, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. And we await the day. <laughs> the king of Israel, even Yahweh, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. Just as it says in Micah about beating plowshares into pruning hooks. Beating swords into plowshares, I'm sorry. Then in Zechariah chapter 9, the same message. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass, a prophecy which applied only to Christ. Because they were the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem, the apostles brought the gospel of Christ to the nations of Europe. Over the centuries after Christ were the people of Europe, the twelve tribes scattered abroad had begun to accept Christ and live as Christians. They began to recognize their kingdoms collectively as the kingdom of God. There are many prophecies and statements in the gospel where certain Greek or Hebrew words are translated as nation or nations. And there are many where the same exact words are translated as Gentile or Gentiles. If the words were translated consistently as Gentile, then many absurdities in church doctrine would become apparent. For example, perhaps Yahweh would have said to Sarah, two Gentiles are in thy womb, referring to Jacob and Esau. Or to Abraham, Thou shalt be a father of many Gentiles. Then, if in the parable of the sheep and the goats we read of the coming of the Son of Man, that before him shall be gathered all Gentiles, people in denominational churches may wonder just what had become of the Jews. So in response to Compare's sermon, where he followed the King James Version and the word Gentile appeared, Clifton left the following note. In this note, he made references to a certain rancher Bible teacher. I do not know who this rancher Bible teacher is, but Clifton first mentioned him in a sermon which we have reviewed here recently, The Unforgivable Sin, a step-by-step -step explanation, where we learned that, the, that Clifton had seen this rancher Bible teacher on television. With that, it is evident that Clifton was digitizing Gene's version of these Compare sermons in 2007, not long after he wrote that paper. So here is Clifton's note, and I will do some minor editing for clarity. There is a rancher Bible teacher on television who claims that Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, where it says, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, 
so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed be numbered, was a promise to the Jews. This rancher Bible teacher divides the entire earth's population into two categories, Jews and Gentiles. And his faulty definition of the Latin term Gentile is a non-Jew. No intelligent Latin student or college professor would give such a flawed definition. The Latin term Gentile, which is gentilis, simply means of the same family or of the same race. Then this rancher Bible teacher quotes Genesis 15.5, which reads, Now look towards the heaven and tell the stars. If thou be able to number them, and he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. The same rancher Bible teacher then makes the claim that the promise of the stars to Abram is for the Gentile church, that the dust is a promise for the so-called Jews, and the stars is a promise for the Gentile church. Is this, or is this not, resting the scriptures? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16, where Peter spoke in reference to Paul's epistles. Of course, that idea is absolutely crazy. I will not say much in response to that note, but that the contradictory opinions of the rancher teacher certainly do reflect the opinions of the denominational churches on those issues. Clifton's definition of gentilis is from a Latin dictionary published in 1945. In an essay on the subject, Misapplication of the Biblical Term Gentile, Clifton wrote, the Junior Classic Latin Dictionary, published by Wilcox and Follett Company in 1945, defines gentilis of the same clan or race. However, the truth is that while gentilis is the word in Latin manuscripts, which was typically used to translate the Greek word ethnos in, in Latin manuscripts of biblical scripture. Let me qualify that. While gentilis in Latin manuscripts of biblical scripture was typically used to translate the Greek word ethnos or nation, the apostles themselves seem not to have ever used it, as it seems that their gospels were not originally written in Latin, but in Greek. However, that being said, it seems that those who did translate the scriptures into Latin seem to have used gentilis as a reason, as there are other Latin words describing nations which may have been used, but which do not have the same exact meaning that Clifton provides here for gentilis. The definition for gentilis in the Junior Classic Latin Dictionary is not an innovation. In the New College Latin and English Dictionary, published by Bantam Books, first in 1966 and then reprinted in 1995, the edition that I have, the definitions for gentilis and related words all point to people of the same clan or race, kindred, fellow clansmen or kinsmen. So the so-called Gentiles are the fellow kinsmen of the Judeans. 
They are indeed the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And not merely modern non-Jews. Now returning to Compare for a short space before I have another comment. Again, when Yahshua promised his 12 apostles their reward, what did he say? Referring to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. That ye which have followed me in the regeneration, I'm sorry, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging. Compare doesn't finish the verse. Instead, he asks about judging. Judging what? Will they be judging the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians? Of course not. The twelve disciples will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel, as we read in the prophecy in Micah chapter 4. All nations other than Israel will walk in the name of their own gods, which in many places the Bible describes as false gods. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 32, the gods of paganism are described as devils. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Gentiles, the Israelites being pagans at the time because they weren't yet converted back to Christ, Paul wrote that the things which the Gentiles or nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. So all nations other than Israel, walking with devils, shall ostensibly share in the same destiny as the devils with whom they walk. So in that respect, having that in mind, Compare continues. Who is it that Yahshua Christ himself will judge? And who will he reward? Not just individuals only, but also nations. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He doesn't ask whether they've been naughty or nice, he just separates them on sight as a shepherd would divide his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, not the church, note that, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil, those gods they worshipped, prepared for the devil and his angels. Citing Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 41. He concludes, And even today, the Christ-hating liberals, Gene Snyder added the word, Jewish in front of that. She did that. It was not on the cassette tape. The Christ-hating liberals are always on the left side. 
Here we see that the goat nations, which describes all nations which are not of the lost sheep of Israel, do indeed have their destiny with the devils, the gods with whom they walked, as Micah had written. For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God. And we, meaning Israel, will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. So this being the subject of one of the parables of Christ, it certainly is an important aspect of the gospel of the kingdom. Because only the sheep go into the kingdom. There are no honorary sheep. There are no goats as honorary sheep. Nobody stopped to ask the goats if they were good or bad goats. So there are no goats in the kingdom. So Compare continues by asking, what gospel did Yahshua preach? Matthew chapter 9 tells us, it says, and Yahshua went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Every time he sent out his disciples to preach, he commanded them to preach the gospel of the kingdom of Yahweh. In Matthew chapter 24, he says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. However, not until the development of Christian identity as a result of the archaeological discoveries and historical interpretations beginning from the exploration of the Near East in the 19th century, has the true gospel of the kingdom ever been preached. But now it is being preached. And sooner or later, the whole world, which is the entire white society, will hear it. They will either accept its witness or it will be a witness against them. Now Compare addresses the lies of the churches in respect to Paul of Tarsus. He says, I know there are many who have been taught in your churches that Paul came to set aside all of Yahshua Christ's teachings and bring a new and different gospel. And this is not true. Paul would have been the last man in the world to have claimed such a thing. If you want to know what Paul preached, Read the last verse of the book of Acts. It says, Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Yahweh and teaching those things which concern Yahshua. Yahshua Christ. In Romans chapter 15 verse 8, Paul tells us, Now I say that Yahshua was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of Yahweh to confirm the promises made to the fathers. But these, as we have seen, were national and racial promises. By the obedience of the individuals, the nation was blessed. By the blessing of the nation, the individual not only prospered materially, but his children grew up in an environment which taught them also to be obedient to Yahweh, so Yahweh's blessings would go on from generation to generation. In like manner, right to the end of his ministry, and just before Paul was sent in bonds to Rome, he himself proclaimed before Herod Agrippa II, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, just as it is proclaimed at the beginning 
of the Gospel of Luke in the end of Luke chapter 1 that the purpose of Christ was to fulfill the promises made to Abraham to keep the covenants, not the Levitical covenant, but to keep the covenants made with Abraham, the unconditional covenants. So Paul continues and he says, unto which promise? Our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Of course, Agrippa was one of those Jews. So there we see that the 12 tribes are not the Jews and that the Jews are distinct from the 12 tribes. And this promise, these promises are for the 12 tribes. And this is 28 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Paul didn't change anything. He taught exactly what Christ and the prophets taught, period. So we may conclude that the entire purpose of Paul's ministry, as Paul himself declared it, Acts chapter 26, that last verse in the book of Acts, which Compare had made mention of, the entire purpose of Paul's ministry, as Paul himself declared it, was to bring the gospel of the kingdom to the people of the kingdom, the scattered and lost 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Paul made mention of the kingdom of God 16 times in nine of his 14 surviving epistles. Although he did not mention it explicitly in Romans chapter 9, while he explained how he had prayed for his brethren in Judea who had not yet accepted Christ, for those who were his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he defined brethren, because not all men in Israel were men of Israel, as he explained, Paul said that his concern was for those who are Israelites, because not all Judeans were Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the servants of service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, the true, natural, genetic Israelites descended from Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, who is over all of who, who is over all of the Israelites. God blessed forever. Amen. Paul never said that any of these important components of the kingdom of God were for anyone other than Israelites. He never said that. The denominational churches repudiate all of this understanding and account a great deal of the scriptures as worthless. So Compare responds accordingly. When will we learn that we cannot repudiate as worthless any part of Yahweh's great plan for us and yet get the blessings out of the rest of it? The churches of today are directly and almost exclusively to blame for the peril of utter destruction which faces Christian civilization today. Within the memory of most of those that hear me, Compre speaking to his audience in Southern California, the white Christian nations of the world were in power, fully capable of ruling the world with Yahweh's rules for the nations. Speaking about world circumstances under the British Empire. Yet the churches taught 
that these rules have all been abolished. They taught that church members must not be contaminated by taking part in politics, but to leave politics exclusively in the hands of the wicked. They taught that we must set free the pagan, Christ-hating, savage nations before we had been able to lift them out of their barbarity. Their befuddled dupes had believed and done these things, and you see the results throughout the world today. And he's talking about the decolonization process which occurred after the Second World War, when the British Empire voluntarily disintegrated. So Compare's final conclusion is an exhortation. Let's get back to the whole Bible, Yahweh's entire plan, while it is still possible. And of course, with Yahweh God, all things are possible. And we will ultimately fulfill his will or suffer punishment until we are so willing to fulfill his will. But in truth, we could never lift the savage nations out of their barbarity, which is just one reason why they shall all be destroyed in the end. However, it was not our commission to ever make such an effort in the first place. Compare accepted some aspects of British identity, of British Israel Dominion theology teaching. The churches, from the introduction of the 501c3 tax exemptions, allowing supporters to deduct their support from their income taxes, have been compelled to agree with the government not to be involved in politics and also to submit to any program the government undertakes in regard to the supposed civil rights of man or beast. So now, because they have turned their backs on the gospel of the kingdom, they have no choice but to repudiate it, as they have sold themselves for mammon. They've sold themselves for mammon, and they've turned their backs on the gospel of the kingdom. They can't go back. The Christian promise is a promise to the children of Israel of a kingdom of God with Yahshua Christ as its king. And that is the kingdom which the apostles had expected Christ to restore to Israel, as it is described in the opening chapter of the book of Acts. All Christians should have that expectation today. But in the closing chapters of the Revelation, that kingdom is represented as a city descended from heaven, having the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel on its gates. So, ostensibly, only people of those twelve tribes will ever be able to get through the door. Christ having come to fulfill both the law and the prophets, where the prophets often prophesy concerning the Messiah and describe him as king, even using David as a type for him. We must examine their words if we are ever going to correctly understand the substance of his kingdom. That is the kingdom of which the gospel speaks, as it was also described in the closing chapters of the Revelation. In our last presentation, titled, this is not white supremacy, it is God's supremacy. We had also taken an opportunity to review a paper by Clifton Emmerheiser titled, When Will All of Israel Be Awakened to Their Identity? 
And where Clifton had mentioned the prophesied seven times of Israel's punishment for her sins. We sought to explain what that meant and the duration of that punishment, as well as its fulfillment in history. Doing that, we saw that the period of the seven times of punishment had already eclipsed as the nations of Israel, the modern Christian nations, entered into a period of self-rule, which has often been even worse than the periods of tyranny to which they had been subjected during those seven times. We identified that period of self-rule as the prophecy time of Jacob's trouble. And here it is in Scripture, from Jeremiah chapter 30. Alas, from verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Describing Jacob in captivity. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid, just as it said in Micah, that there would be no more war, that they would beat their plowshares into pruning hooks. All of these prophets, prophecies concerning the kingdom that we will cite here, that we've cited from Micah, Zechariah, and Zephaniah, we will cite here from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, they're all speaking of basically the same thing. Actually, I should say they're all speaking of precisely the same thing. Continuing with Jeremiah chapter 30 from verse 11. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. The parable of the sheep and the goats should come to mind here. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have, where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. This last statement found in verse 11 of the chapter helps to bring to light the meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats. But where it says in verse 9, But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. The reference cannot be to the ancient king David, as he had passed perhaps 400 years before Jeremiah had written. But rather, David is a prophetic type, a model for Christ, a figure of Christ, and represents Christ in certain prophecies of the coming kingdom of Yahweh. So we see a similar prophecy of the kingdom of God in Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Jeremiah. They wrote around the same time. From Ezekiel chapter 37, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah, and for the children of Israel, his companions, then take another stick and write upon it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick. 
and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. When Ezekiel wrote this, Israel and most of Judah were already taken away in the Assyrian deportations. So Ezekiel was prophesying of a time when they would once again be united. And that happened when the nations of Europe, which went on to form over the subsequent centuries, had all turned to Christ and became Christian. Continuing with Ezekiel, we see Christ prophesied as king, you again using David as a type. As we see who he shall rule over in his kingdom and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, or the nations, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them. The kingdom of God is only the children of Israel with Christ as their king. Nobody else can be part of that kingdom. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. This is a prophecy of the kingdom of God, a kingdom in which the children of Israel have their hope, but to which they have not yet attained. And therefore the gospel of the kingdom is a gospel for this kingdom. Yahshua Christ ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel, wherein the apostles shall be judges, as he had told them that they would sit judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Once again, continuing with that same passage from Ezekiel, from verse 25, And they shall dwell in the land that I gave, that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelled, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle, the body of Christ, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
and the heathen, or nations, properly nations, the same nations of Israel. And the nations shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. We see one more prophecy of the kingdom of God in Hosea chapter 3, where once again David is a type for Christ. Hosea wrote over a century before Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as the children of Israel were first being carried off into captivity. For the children of Israel, verse 4 of Hosea chapter 3, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim, all these symbols of nationhood. Afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek Yahweh their God, and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. Nowhere in any prophecy of the kingdom of God does it say that Christ will rule over the non-Israel nations. And where it says that he shall rule all nations with a rod of iron, in Revelation chapters 12 and 19, it should also not be interpreted that way, as in those same places the destruction of his enemies is also prophesied. Christ does not intend to rule over the goat nations, who are all destined for the lake of fire, to walk with their gods. There is one other aspect of these prophecies to discuss, and that is where we read in Ezekiel chapter 37, that they shall dwell in a land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they, and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. The promises to the fathers, which Christ had come to fulfill, as Compare has explained, were all intended for their natural children, not for anyone who could pretend to be their children. So they were racial and national in nature. They belonged to nations of people, and not to church buildings or organizations. The children of Israel are the substance of the kingdom of God, and the gospel of the kingdom would be preached, and then we are told by Christ in Matthew chapter 24 that upon that event, the end would come. But the apostles of Christ had asked him a question, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 17. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias, a reference to the Elijah, Elijah the prophet of the first and second books of Kings, that Elijah must come first. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed or whatsoever they wished. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. And they killed him. But Christ also said that Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. 
speaking of some future event, because John the Baptist was already dead. So looking at the books of the prophets, which foretell that event, we have the prophecy of Malachi. There, John the Baptist is prophesied as the messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord, who is Christ. And he fulfilled that mission in his time. But the prophecy has a dual aspect, since it also asks, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Then, a little further on in this messianic prophecy, we read, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away with, from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith Yahweh of hosts. But you said, Wherein shall we return? So this is also a prophecy of the establishment of his kingdom. As Malachi chapter 4 opens, we see a prophecy of the destruction of the wicked which is certainly a prophecy of the return of Christ, wherein he shall destroy all of his enemies, as it is also explained in Revelation chapter 19. But just as at his first coming, once again, his way must be prepared. So we read at the end of that chapter, Behold, I will send, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is how Elijah would come and restore, and restore all things. He would come and restore all the things between Yahweh God and the children of Israel by turning the hearts of the children to their fathers. As the apostles of Christ had told us, that he came to fulfill the promises made to the fathers. And as Bertrand Compare had pointed out, that all of those promises to the fathers were centered on the children. The gospel of the kingdom is an identification of those children, a call for them to hearken to the promises of God made to their fathers, and a call for obedience to the commandments of Christ so that he may dwell in them. That was the entire purpose of Paul of Tarsus, and that is the stated purpose of Christ himself. This Christian identity message is the Elijah which is to come, since it certainly does turn the hearts of the fathers to the children to their own race, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, the fathers to whom God had made his promises. It is also the gospel of the kingdom, as it announces the gospel of Christ as it was meant to be announced in relation to the true Israel of God that was carried off into captivity many centuries before Christ had appeared in the midst of his enemies. This racial and national message of the gospel, which we have in Christian identity, cannot be stopped 
and it will not be stopped in spite of our enemies. That is because Christ himself had announced that it must be heard before the end may come. Even if we were to fail, this message shall prevail. As he said in relation to his own proclamation as king by the people in the gate of Jerusalem, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Yahshua Christ shall return. He shall be king over the children of Israel. The children of Israel, the white nations of Christian Europe, shall ultimately submit to him alone, and that is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the only true gospel. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.